Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to this podcast titled Clinical Handover to Primary Care, where we're drawing on the content from the December 2020 edition of the Clinical Communique. I'm Dr. Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. This episode of the Clinical Communique features the critical issue of clinical handover to primary care. This is something that happens every day, but it's not something that's always done well. Patients are routinely discharged from hospital into the care of their GPs, but the systems that ensure a good clinical handover has occurred are often lacking. A handover should include information about how the patient presented, what their tests showed, what were they treated with, what was started and what was stopped with their medications, what follow-up was booked or needs booking, as well as anything else of relevance that came to light or any other clinical decisions that were made during their admission. At the point of discharge, all of that information needs to be handed over. That is, it needs to be communicated clearly and accurately, in a timely manner, and in a way that is received, understood, and acted upon by the person taking over the patient's care. So, lots of steps involved each time and a real potential for the communication to fail somewhere along the way. Clinical handover is an extremely risky process. In this episode, we start with the editorial, which introduces our theme of clinical handover. And we also reflect on how we worked through 2020, the challenges we faced, and in spite of those challenges, all the things that we achieved. We then have two cases for you, one from Queensland and one from Victoria that show us how and where those steps in clinical handover were missed, sadly, with terrible consequences. The cases are followed by our expert commentary, written by an eminent group of primary care specialists who hail from several cities across Australia. They explain why reframing discharge summaries as clinical handovers matters so much. If we all heed their eight points on clinical handover, we can make a big difference to the quality of our clinical handovers, and that means we'll be doing things better for our patients. Let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate the editorial. This is Volume 7, Issue 4 of the Clinical Communique, December 2020 edition. Contents include an editorial, Case Number 1, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, 
Case number two, an incomplete picture and expert commentary, clinical handover to primary care, why reframing discharge summaries as clinical handovers matters. Editorial from Dr. Nicola Cunningham. Welcome to episode four of the Clinical Communique podcast titled Clinical Handover to Primary Care. 2020 was a year like no other. It was a year where we all braced ourselves for COVID-19 changes in our workplaces. Consciously or not, we learned to be more flexible, adaptive and resilient. The COVID-19 pandemic threw many hardships and challenges at healthcare systems, but it also created opportunities to review and improve models of care. Though many clinicians in healthcare reached the end of 2020 with a collective sense of exhaustion and cognitive overload, much was learnt and achieved. That is a tribute to the dedication of people around the world who found time to share their knowledge and experiences about COVID-19 and everything else in healthcare that we must continue to focus on to keep patients safe. Upon review of the systems that underpin healthcare, Some have proven to be well-designed and effective, while others were not fit for purpose and in need for improvement. Coronial investigations are an objective form of review for identifying underperforming systems and formulating practical recommendations to improve patient safety. We are proud of maintaining our publication cycle of the communiques through 2020, despite ever-increasing distractions and the demands of increased workloads during the pandemic. We are constantly inspired by our expert contributors and our readers who make the time to read and support our work. Our first edition for 2020 revisited commentaries from past editions of the clinical communique to discuss lessons applicable to the emergency management response to the pandemic. This can be heard in episode one of the clinical communique podcast, COVID-19 and acute healthcare. The June 2020 clinical communique edition described torsidogenic drugs and the challenges in delivering mental health care in secure settings. This was presented in episode two of the clinical communique, Twisting of the Points. Our September 2020 clinical communique edition pivoted to look at the pressing issue of psychological safety for healthcare workers during the COVID-19 pandemic and discussed the importance of acting now to reduce harm in the long term. Go to episode three of the clinical communique for COVID-19 and psychological safety for healthcare workers. This episode of the Clinical Communique features the important issue of clinical handover to primary care. The transfer of care of a patient from hospital to home is an undeniably high-risk process. Optimal transfers of care require communication of vital discharge information occurring at a critical interface point with multiple, non-standard steps. Treating hospital clinicians need to articulate a clear post-discharge plan. The plan needs to be conveyed to and received by the primary care clinicians in a timely manner. The patient also needs to understand all the components of the plan. Even in its most simplified form, the necessary steps in safely discharging a patient from hospital are multiple and involve various types of communication between several individuals. 
the two cases presented in this episode highlight the fatal consequences when those steps are inadequate or incomplete. The expert commentary is by a group of clinicians leading the way in improving clinical handover to primary care. Dr. Katrina McLean, Dr. Michael Rice, Dr. Tim Lewenberg, and Dr. Nick Tallis offer us a compelling argument on the need to replace an administrative discharge summary with a specialist-led clinical handover. This conceptual shift is the only way of affording the process with the attention and priority it deserves to ensure the safe transfer of patient care. A final note on what 2020 was for our team at The Communiques. It was the year we launched our podcasts and produced three episodes of The Clinical Communique, five episodes of The Residential Aged Care Communique, and three episodes of The Future Leaders Communique. In addition, one of our team, Professor Joe Ibrahim, was awarded silver in the Bullseye Award category of the Australian Podcast Awards for his Professor Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. Thank you for your encouragement and enthusiasm for our podcasts. We look forward to bringing you more editions and podcasts of the Clinical Communique in 2021. Let's now listen to the case from Queensland. Case number one, don't ask, don't tell. Case number 2011-4258, Queensland. Case Pracy author, Dr. Rachel Ma, general practitioner and forensic physician. Clinical summary. Mr. TM was a 48-year-old man who developed multiple renal calculi or kidney stones, which were obstructing the flow of urine from one of his kidneys. He required a procedure at his local hospital to insert a stent to relieve the blockage. Several weeks later, Mr. TM presented to the hospital's ED with left flank pain and dizziness. He also described recent central chest tightness, nausea, and tingling in his left arm. After an ECG and blood tests, which were all unremarkable, he was discharged home from the ED. On the discharge summary, the emergency doctors requested that Mr. TM's GP organise an exercise stress test to explore their presumed diagnosis of angina due to the ischemic heart disease. Approximately two weeks after this visit to the ED, Mr. TM was referred back to the hospital by his GP following a CT scan which showed that the stent was no longer working properly. He was noted to have been commenced on a medication, Telmasartan, for his hypertension. Mr. TM was discharged home with a plan for surgery to remove the stent in two weeks' time. Prior to his second surgery, Mr. TM was seen by an anaesthetist at the hospital. The anaesthetist noted that Mr. TM had no significant medical conditions and in particular, no history of cardiovascular disease and that he was not taking any regular medications. Mr. TM underwent surgery as planned and suffered a heart attack while in the recovery unit. He went into cardiac arrest and although he was transferred almost immediately to the cardiac catheter lab, he was not able to be resuscitated. Pathology. Mr. TM did not undergo an autopsy, as the cause of death was able to be confidently ascertained based on the medical records. 
When he underwent coronary angiography following his cardiac arrest, he was found to have a 100% blockage of his left middle coronary artery. The cause of death was listed as myocardial infarction due to or as a consequence of ischemic heart disease due to or as a consequence of hypertension. Investigation. A forensic medical officer was called upon to give an expert opinion on the care Mr. TM received and after pursuing all the documentation provided, they made the following observations. Mr. TM's GP stated that he had never received the ED discharge summary informing him of the likely diagnosis of angina and the need for further investigation. When Mr. TM returned with stent problems, the ED staff did not appear to be aware of the history of angina. The urology department responsible for the surgery were also unaware of Mr. TM's initial presentation to ED with presumed angina. The nurse who had seen Mr. TM in the pre-admission clinic prior to his surgery had noted that Talmasatin was prescribed for hypertension in a handwritten pre-operative document. The anaesthetist was unaware of Mr. TM being on medication for hypertension. This was attributed to the anaesthetist not having all of the medical notes available at the time of the pre-anaesthetic assessment, including the pre-operative assessment done in the pre-admission clinic by the nurse. Had the anaesthetist known, he likely would have explored the possibility of undiagnosed ischemia. Mr. TM himself neglected to mention his episode of chest tightness, his need for medication to manage his blood pressure, or his medication for gastroesophageal reflux disease when the anaesthetist asked about his medical history. Mr. TM also said no when asked if he had heart disease suggesting that Mr. TM was not aware of his presumptive diagnosis of angina from ischemic heart disease. Shortcomings in the systems of communication between the hospital and Mr. TM's GP were highlighted by the discovery that the GP had not been made aware of Mr. TM's death until contacted by the hospital review team. The letter from the ED to the GP suggesting a stress test be conducted was never received. Following multiple morbidity and mortality meetings at the hospital where Mr. TM's case was discussed and a root cause analysis that was subsequently conducted, the hospital made the following changes. The allocation of a duty anaesthetist that would be dedicated to assessing and managing pre- and post-operative patients. Increased availability of the newly rolled out electronic medical records which had gone live two days prior to Mr. TM's death including increased number of laptops designated for anaesthetists' use. Systems in place to put appropriate alerts, such as suspected angina, on the scanned electronic medical records and to ensure timely scanning of medical documents to the electronic medical record. An audit would be undertaken to determine how many patients were discharged without written communication to their GPs. A policy would be developed for patients who do not have a nominated GP. Patients would be given a copy of their discharge summary and told to follow up with their GP rather than just relying on the electronic system for delivering discharge summaries to their GP, acknowledging the pitfalls of relying on this process. Coroner's Findings the coroner found that the hospital had made a genuine and concerted effort to ensure that a similar death would not happen again, and as such, a coronial inquest was not required.
author's comments. This case highlights various ways in which poor communication contributes to adverse patient outcomes. The lack of communication between the ED and Mr TM's GP meant that the GP was not able to ensure prompt follow-up of the concerns raised or highlight the issue of possible underlying ischemic heart disease to the urology department. Evidently, the ED's communication to the patient about the cause of his chest tightness was not adequate to ensure that Mr. TM understood that they believed he was experiencing angina due to underlying ischemic heart disease and that he required further tests and management. Mr. TM also appeared unaware that he had been diagnosed with hypertension. Often, when communication between members of a patient's treating team breaks down, it is the patient themselves who communicates the missing information and fills in the gaps to avoid catastrophe. When the patient lacks understanding and insight into their condition, the risks associated with unknown clinical information escalate exponentially. Let's now listen to the case from Victoria. Case number two, an incomplete picture. Case number COR 2014-004464, Victoria. Case Precy author, Dr. Nicola Cunningham, emergency physician and forensic physician. Clinical summary. Baby T was a five-month-old boy whose parents brought to their GP, Dr. AJ, with a two-day history of fevers, cough, decreased oral intake, and a rash in his groin. Dr. AJ diagnosed a viral illness and sent baby T home for treatment with a combined antifungal and steroid cream for the groin rash. When baby T returned the following day for review, Dr. AJ referred him to a specialist paediatric hospital with concerns that he had a respiratory tract infection and was dehydrated. At the hospital, baby T was noted to have an extensive red rash over his torso and groin and reddening of his conjunctiva, lips and tongue. The treating team conducted blood tests and ordered a chest x-ray and considered a differential diagnosis of erysipelas, systemic staphylococcal or streptococcal infection, or early Kawasaki disease. The blood tests showed abnormalities with his inflammatory markers, including a C-reactive protein result of 268, where a normal CRP level is less than 10 mg per litre. Treatment was commenced with intravenous penicillin and fluid rehydration therapy. Baby T was kept in the short-stay unit and reviewed overnight for high fevers and tachycardia. His heart rate was recorded up to 220 beats per minute. The normal range for a five-month-old child is less than 150 beats per minute. Over the next 24 hours, baby T was intermittently febrile, but he showed signs of improvement. His fevers slowly abated and his oral intake improved. His throat swab was negative and an anti-streptolysin antibody test to assist in determining the presence of streptococcal infection was also negative. He was switched to oral antibiotics and discharged home with a provisional diagnosis of viral illness with a rash and secondary bacterial skin infection. The discharge plan for baby T was to continue the antibiotics and rash cream for five days and see his GP in 48 hours for a review. A couple of days later, baby T attended the GP clinic as instructed 
Dr. AJ had not, however, received any documentation from the hospital about Baby T's recent admission. Dr. AJ noted that Baby T looked tired and had a fever and a congested throat. Baby T's mother explained that he had been diagnosed with a streptococcal infection and given antibiotics to take. Dr. AJ made a plan to review Baby T after three days, or earlier if there were any concerns, and to continue the antibiotic treatment. The following week, Baby T's parents woke to find him distressed in his cot. As they held him in their arms, he went limp and stopped breathing. Despite cardiopulmonary resuscitation and urgent transport to hospital, Baby T died a short time later. Pathology At autopsy, the forensic pathologist made the following findings. Pericardial effusion Myocarditis, pericarditis, coronary artery aneurysms, including one ruptured, possibly during resuscitation. Laminated thrombus within the coronary arteries and widespread vasculitis consistent with Kawasaki disease. Investigation. The coroner obtained Baby T's medical records and requested statements from Dr. AJ and the treating team at the hospital to examine the adequacy of care provided to Baby T. The coroner also sought further clinical information about Kawasaki disease from the investigating unit and heard that. Kawasaki disease is an inflammatory condition of blood vessels that affects coronary arteries in particular and most commonly occurs in children. The diagnostic criteria are fever for five days and the presence of at least four of conjunctivitis, mucositis, rash, peripheral changes, and lymphadenopathy. There are no pathognomonic findings for Kawasaki disease. The diagnosis relies on clinical suspicion. Children under one year of age are at increased risk of complications. First-line therapy includes intravenous immunoglobulin and aspirin. Incomplete Kawasaki disease refers to patients who are suspected of suffering Kawasaki disease but who do not fulfil the diagnostic criteria. Dr AJ explained in his statement that he did not seek information from the hospital when he reviewed Baby T because it was a Sunday evening, making it unlikely that he would be able to speak to Baby T's treating team. He did not consider Kawasaki disease as a possible cause for Baby T's presentation. The hospital conducted its own review into Baby T's death and found that his discharge summary was not completed until six weeks after he died. The hospital also noted that senior medical staff did not think that Baby T had Kawasaki disease and the hospital's clinical practice guideline on Kawasaki disease did not highlight the challenges of diagnosing Kawasaki disease in infants. Following their review, the hospital updated their clinical practice guideline on Kawasaki disease to reflect age-specific concerns. Coroner's findings. The coronial investigation into Baby T's death was completed without holding an inquest. The coroner found that better communication between the hospital and Dr. AJ may have provided an opportunity for Baby T 
to have been correctly diagnosed and commenced on intravenous immunoglobulin. The coroner acknowledged the difficulties in diagnosing incomplete Kawasaki disease in infants and the possibility that baby T would not have survived his severe illness, even with the correct therapy. The coroner recommended that the Department of Health and Human Services mandate a formal handover process for when a patient is discharged from hospital with a plan for follow-up within 48 hours. In those circumstances, a member of the discharging team must contact a member of the receiving medical service to hand over the patient. Author's comments. Section 72 of the Coroner's Act 2008 Vic states, in subsection two, that a coroner may make recommendations to any minister, public statutory authority or entity on any matter connected with the death or fire which the coroner has investigated including recommendations relating to public health and safety or the administration of justice. Subsection 3 states that if a public statutory authority or entity receives recommendations made by the coroner under subsection 2, the public statutory authority or entity must provide a written response not later than three months after the date of receipt of the recommendations in accordance with subsection 4 which states that a written response to the coroner by a public statutory authority or entity must specify a statement of action, if any, that has, is, or will be taken in relation to the recommendations made by the coroner. In this case, the Secretary of the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services provided a written response to the coroner affirming that the department would directly write to health service chief executive officers and directors of emergency medicine to reinforce the expectation that, where a patient needs follow-up within a 48-hour time period, the service is required to exercise good clinical practice and make direct contact with the relevant practitioner at and before patient discharge and make contact to ensure that the patient has received follow-up. Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Dr. Katrina McLean, Dr. Michael Rice, Dr. Tim Lewenberg, and Dr. Nick Tellis. Expert commentary. Clinical handover to primary care. Why reframing discharge summaries as clinical handovers matters. From Dr. Katrina McLean, General Practitioner, Chair of General Practice Gold Coast, Director, GPs Down Under, Assistant Professor, School of Medicine and Health Sciences, Bond University. Dr. Michael Rice, General Practitioner, past President of the Rural Doctors Association of Queensland. Dr. Tim Lewenberg, Rural Generalist, South Australia, Aeromedical Retrieval Specialist, Northern Territory. Dr. Nick Tallis, General Practitioner, Chair, Southern Adelaide General Practice Council. How information is exchanged between hospitals and primary care is a frequent topic of discussion with both primary care and hospitals. The process of a patient transitioning between these health systems carries significant risk. There are, however, approaches that can be taken to reduce these risks. The harm from delayed or absent exchange of information between hospitals and primary care is significant. 
first-hand accounts of delays in critical clinical information impacting treatment, medication errors, and failure of notification of the death of a patient are frequently discussed within GP circles. Many of these adverse events go unreported. Our systems simply don't yet connect in a matter that facilitates this reporting. As the cases discussed in this issue illustrate, the harm can be significant at an individual level. Inefficiencies also occur when clinicians are having to chase information, investigations are duplicated, or patients are readmitted due to uncertainty around the management plan. We propose the following points for consideration. One, language matters. We need to reframe discharge summaries as the clinical handovers they are. The National Safety and Quality Health Service Standards and the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare define clinical handover as the transfer of professional responsibility and accountability for some or all aspects of care for a patient or group of patients to another person or professional group. Communicating for safety is a standard and a requirement of the National Safety and Quality Health Service Standards. The Commission notes the importance of transition of care that ends only when the patient is received into the next clinical setting. The Australian Council on Healthcare Standards, EQUIP National Standard 12 in particular, specifies the planned provision of transfer information, including results of investigations. The language we use matters. It informs thought at conscious and subconscious levels and influences behaviour. The words discharge summary evoke feelings of an administrative process at best and various unsavoury processes at worst. The accidental discharge, the dishonourable discharge and the smelly discharge all come to mind. The words clinical handover instantly sound more professional because they are professional. The words embody the patient-centred interaction between clinicians of which we want to be part. Clinical handover is a term familiar to both clinicians and administrators. It is taught in medical schools around the country and practiced between junior and senior doctors within our hospitals. Clinical handover is a recognised, evidence-based, structured and essential safety mechanism for minimising this risk. The continued use of discharge summary diminishes the importance of the clinical handover that occurs to primary care. The narrative needs to change from viewing a discharge summary as a low-value task delegated to the most junior member of the team as an administrative chore or to meet key performance indicators to a full appreciation that this is a clinical handover for which senior clinicians need to take full responsibility. We must move away from the culture that has seen piles of uncompleted discharge summaries being delegated days, weeks or months later to the most junior member of the team. Worse, we must move from the culture within private hospitals of discharge summaries for continuity of medical care being completed by staff without the relevant scope of practice. KPI-driven letters from those not involved in care of the patients concerned are neither excellent nor efficient. The system needs appropriate friction to deliver best outcomes. In public hospitals, friction must be reduced. 
it must be easier for doctors to have clinical handover as part of their workflow. In private hospitals, friction must be introduced. It is too easy for specialist doctors to delegate clinical handover to nurses not involved in the care of the patient. A form letter is not a clinical handover. Two, the gold standard needs to be that the clinical handover to primary care occurs at or before the time the patient leaves the hospital. Health services continue to debate the appropriate time frame for communicating with the GP who is continuing the patient's care. GP discussion forums, such as GPs Down Under, continue to identify multiple different targets across Australia. Variations include at the point of discharge, 48 hours after discharge, and five days after discharge. The reality is that few patients leave hospital with a safe and effective clinical handover. Some will be received within the hospital's current targets. However, many clinical handovers are not received for weeks, months, or on occasion years after the patient care is transferred. Some never occur. Depending on the target used, those received within target may still result in adverse outcomes. Systems failings may compound the error. Clinical handovers may be dictated in a timely fashion, but not typed or sent for some days, weeks, or even months after. Even completion of electronic discharge summaries may fail if sent to the wrong practice or they become caught up in cyberspace. We are aware of a hospital that had thousands of discharge summaries sitting sent but undelivered due to an IT problem, discovered only after a single GP complained to the hospital. Such is the current pessimism and learned helplessness from GPs as to hospital performance that the problem went undetected for months. Of particular note is the recommendation in the case of Baby T discussed in this edition that when follow-up is recommended within 48 hours, that a member of the treating team should personally contact the receiving medical service to effect patient handover. Three, the clinical handover needs to occur between the clinicians taking responsibility for the patient's care. When deciding who is best tasked with the clinical handover within the hospital, it is unlikely that this would be handed to the most junior members of the team and exceedingly unlikely that it would be delegated to someone who had never treated or met the patient. Within hospitals, it is expected that communicating for safety occurs at or before the time a patient's care transitions to another team or provider. Why should this be any different for patients whose transition is through the hospital doors and back to primary care? 4. Clinical handover must be a standardised process between clinicians. Medical practitioners frequently use ISBAR, Introduction, Situation, Background, Assessment, and recommendation to guide clinical handover. This format can be adapted to the primary care context. A crowdsourced template has been proposed by the GPs Down Under community and is freely available. The template is a living document that has been created from online discussions, over 300 GPs directly contributing to the structure and wording, and over 3,000 engaging with the discussions. A number of hospitals have incorporated the template into their intern teaching programs. The link to this online template can be found on the Communiques website.
the I of ISBAR is for identification. Prioritize identification of a GP. If the patient does not have a regular GP, they must be provided with help to find one who is suitable. This is primarily an administrative task. While it is important that the clinician conducting the handover identifies the recipient, if the patient does not have a regular GP, procedures should be in place to ensure that this is identified long before the point of transition. Relevant community team members need to be included in the handover. Electronic handovers should, when completed, not be in excess of one to two pages of core clinical information. Data sucked in from hospital admissions and pertaining more to billing or KPIs is seldom helpful and creates a situation whereby patients are at risk because critical clinical information is hidden amongst clutter. Five. Clinical handover should include the patient. Patient care can be improved by involving the patient in the discharge planning and by ensuring the patient has a copy of the clinical handover and an understanding of the content. Jargon and acronyms should be avoided. Involve and include the patient in the process. 6. Clinical handover needs to occur between people, not machines. Our electronic systems may assist the storage of patient information. However, they are not a substitute for a clinical handover. Care needs to be taken to avoid the assumption that this is the case. In the real world, GPs are grappling with being thrown links to hospital electronic records through systems such as the viewer in Queensland. Investigations are likely to be uploaded after a delay to my health record. These are raw data, unfiltered and disorganised, and more of a throw of information than a handover. The conversation around the perception of when information is received is interesting. So often when adverse events are fed back to services, the clinicians involved have been unaware that the information was delayed in reaching the intended recipient. This point was also highlighted in Mr TM's case. My health record has been touted as a partial solution to the problems that have traditionally plagued clinical handover. It is important, however, to remember what my health record is and what it was created for. It is a repository of information for patients. It is not, nor was it designed to be, a communication tool for clinicians. It was not specified to replace current clinical record systems or current communication channels between clinicians. These limitations and precautions are outlined in the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners My Health Record Guide for GPs, which states, My health record is not designed as a substitute for direct communication between healthcare providers about a patient's care and should not be used in this manner. Healthcare providers must continue to communicate directly with other healthcare providers involved in the care of a patient through the usual channels, preferably through secure electronic communication. Important clinical information is pushed into my health record and the receiving clinician is not pulled to it by any sort of notification. There is no handover without closing the communication loop. Health professionals and organisations must ensure that clinical handover occurs with the intended recipient at the time of transition. A copy uploaded to My Health Record for the patient to access as an archive 
may serve as a safety net if all else fails, but should not be relied on as the only source of communication. 7. The health system must support clinicians to provide clinical handover to primary care. Patient care and practitioner well-being should not continue to be compromised due to a culture of a discharge summary being an administrative task undertaken by the most junior team member. The challenges of high administrative burdens, inadequate staffing and unpaid overtime all need addressing. Junior doctors should not be left alone grappling with piles of outstanding discharge summaries to complete on patients they have never met. Adequate clinical staffing levels with protected time for clinicians to prepare clinical handovers should be a key performance indicator in hospital care. Proactive strategies must be put in place to identify and document who will be receiving the clinical handover. Senior clinicians must install a culture that shifts the discharge summary from an administrative chore to representing a clinical handover with all the attendant quality and safety implications this confers. Bottom line, if it's your name at the end of the bed, it's your responsibility to ensure a clinical handover occurs. 8. Excellence must be recognised. Where is this being done well? Collaborate and learn from other services who are leading the way in redefining the culture and policy around clinical handover to primary care. Let us recognise and applaud our hospitals and health services leading the way in acknowledging discharge summaries as the clinical handovers that they are. Let us all acknowledge that this can be done better. Our patient safety depends on it. Thanks for tuning into this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions are available at our website at www.thecommunicase.com, which also include a list of resources and any references that the experts recommended. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.